Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Professor Nicole Boyson. She's the Patrick F. and Helen C. Walsh Research Professor of Finance at the Damore McKim School of Business. She's got a really interesting area of research. We're going to talk to her right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Nicole. How are you? Hi, Tobias. It's so nice to see you. Doing so, well, thanks. <laughs> we we uh, went back and forth a little bit on your most recent paper. So um, can we perhaps just describe your area of research and uh, how this paper fits in? Of course. And so I've been doing research, I guess, roughly 20 years-ish. Um, uh, grad school started in 1998. So, um, But I, most of my work, it's sort of three categories. It's, it's hedge funds. And then within hedge funds, um, you know, I started out working in hedge funds when it was a new area. So we were just getting our hands on data. So I looked at a lot of kind of standard stuff like risk and return and trying to figure out if managers have skill and persistence. Um, and then I moved along to more focusing on activism. So sometime in 2000, gosh, 2010, 2011, um, probably a little bit before that, you know, activists, there was an article in Business Week of all places that said like, hedge fund activists, this is the new thing. And so one of my colleagues and I decided to kind of try to dig into that. And we ended up writing a paper that was published in 2011 that looked at the link between activism and corporate governance. And so that was kind of interesting because if you think about a hedge fund activist, the whole the whole idea is he's coming in and he's going to try to buy up, you know, five to 10% of a company's stock and try to make changes. And it turns out that a lot of the changes are governance related. And so things like shaking up the board of directors, making it easier for shareholders to, to hold special meetings. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes, you know, getting rid of management or re reorganizing. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, and, and so in corporate finance, there there's a lot of question about whether good governance actually translates into good performance for stocks. So kind of leaving that aside and just thinking of governance as, as important and good governance is better than bad, we tried to take a look at how activists get involved and change governance. And we did find a little evidence that linked um, you know, firms that improve their governance to also some improvements in, in other areas and activism, or I'm sorry, in other areas of the firm like ROA and stock performance and, and those sorts of measures. Activism has had this uh, interesting evolution where I think in the 80s, it was a lot of it was the leveraged uh, buyout takeover style where it was that was not really activism. It was more they were, they were literally trying to get control. And then at some yes. stage, it kind of it, it evolved a little bit. And that version that started in the early 2000s was uh, sort of the Dan Loeb, uh, David Einhorn kind mm -hmm. of style yeah. where they'd buy a small holding and then where they couldn't otherwise get control, they'd be quite um, vocal and they'd use the, the sort of the nasty <laughs> letter to kind of try to try to push change through. That was, yeah. and I think a lot of that was, was a response to the fact that the, 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 the rules for getting control were so st uh, stacked against the activists. Yeah. You know, all of that poison pills and uh, mm -hmm. staggered boards and so on. And so yes. when, when, 
uh, it's sort of an interesting uh, petri dish where you get to look at does does activism actually drive improvements to corporate governance? Does corporate governance actually lead to better returns in the market? And that's and you find you find there is some minimal evidence for that, but not much. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it was it's hard to measure too, but but yeah, initially the the our first resp- our first kind of results related to corporate governance um, and activism. But then I've got a bunch of other projects in the space, and and I'll talk about those if that's okay. So you know, one of them um, we looked at mergers, and so there's a paper by uh, Robin Greenwood and and Michael Shore. Greenwood is at um, Harvard, super bright guy, and he talks about activism and kind of says, look. Activism is fine, but it really only adds value when the firm is ultimately taken over. And he has this great chart in his paper that kind of shows that takeovers, you know, you get like a 30% stock price pop. And that's great, but sort of all the other firms kind of stagnate. And so my colleagues, uh, my, my friend Nick Ganchev and Anil Shivdasani, both at the time were at um, UNC, we decided to sort of dig a little deeper into the merger space. And we found what, what Greenwood found. We found certainly that the best outcomes from activism were when the firm was taken over. But we also had some other kind of cool results where if a firm came in, um, if an activist came in and got the firm to sort of a merger bid place, so you know they got to the point where a serious offer was made, sometimes by the activist. So interesting side note, about 15% of my sample, in, in about 15% of the time, the activist itself would make a bid. And those are firms that you'd think of often as more the traditional buyout private equity firms. Carl Icahn comes to mind. And so they'd make a bid and apparently it's credible enough because about half the time the activist bid would actually go through and they'd buy the firm the other half of the or they or someone else right oftentimes that would increase the uh, demand for oh this looks like an interesting an interesting it's target. in play it's in play that's right thank you I, that's, the, that's the word <laughs> we use and then the other half of the time that those bids would sort of falter so um but then there are other cases where the activist wasn't making the bid, but some third party would, and some of those would falter too. So if you look at like third party potential buyers, like 90% of those ultimately went through, either to them or somebody else. If you look at potential activist buyers, about half of those went through. But if you look at all the ones that don't go through, so like half of the 15% and then the 10% of the larger sample, what we found was that the stock returns for those were kind of in between the very good outcome of a merger, but the sort of dismal outcome of you know activism without a merger. And we sort of argued that firms must be, you know, they, they know they're, they're getting this bid, they get themselves in better shape to get ready for this bid. And then even if the bid doesn't come through, it sort of appears that, again, causality is really hard to determine, but it appears that the improvements they made were substantial enough to get that stock in sort of a, if it's 30% longer term return, say for a merger, maybe it's 15% for these guys in the middle. So we thought that was really interesting that activists do appear to make changes, but you need a kind of a, a really serious, like, a serious event like, oh my gosh, I might get taken over and lose my job to really shape up, where the guys who didn't have a takeover threat, you'd see some incremental stuff. But the stock price, which, again, I care about ROA, but if I'm buying the stock, I care about the stock price, much harder to trace out really great long-term stock returns. So so when the when the, when the activist shows up and, and somebody makes a bid, whether the bid goes through or not, there, the, yeah. there is some underlying improvements to the company? Absolutely, yeah. We would find... Right. Fundamentals, yeah, we would take a look at things like um, asset sales, um, capital structure, leverage, all the things that we think about firms might do to improve efficiency. Um, CEOs still sometimes got fired. That's one huge uh, consistent outcome of the activist. If an activist comes in 
you better be dusting off your resume because there's like a <laughs> double the chance that you're going to lose your job if, if an activist isn't there. So, that, you know, they double. Yeah. So it's huge. If you just kind of look at average CEO turnover in any given time frame, it's maybe 20 percent a year. If there's an activist there, it's like 40 plus. And so, you know, causality, again, hard to determine. But we, we're pretty comfortable that the activist had something to do with that much of the time. Yeah, I think it's incredibly interesting. It's an area that I when I uh, started writing my blog years and years ago, the what I was initially looking for were net nets, which are companies that are basically that you're not paying for the business at all. And if it's right. traded down that low, that's it, that's bad news for that company. They're basically <laughs> saying it's worth more dead than alive. But the yes. wrinkle that I added, I only I only bought the ones where there had been a 13D filing on the company. Wow. It seemed to, and to, the, I I. Ultimately, I think that that underperformed buying just the whole cohort of net nets, but, but I felt better doing it because I thought, well, at least there's some external pressure to force right. something to happen. So there's a chance yes. that you get a sale or you get some sort of something happens. Management exactly. does something. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because, you know, we can only observe so much. So the 13D filings, you know, it's just a treasure trove. So for those of your viewers, a 13D filing is if a, if any investor comes in and wants to buy up 5% or more of a company's stock and has some intent on being active, you know, and they're not just happened across the 5% because they're a big index fund like Vanguard and they're, they're you know, they're in there. Um, they can, those guys, the passive guys can file what's called a 13G, much less onerous form. They file it like quarterly. But a 13D, you've got to file 10 days after you hit the 5% threshold and you have to state your intent. So sometimes the intent is really vague, like we think this stock is cheap and we just want to buy it. But most of and that's about half the time. But the rest of the time, you know, something really interesting. They want to push a merger or change the capital structure or improve operations or fire somebody. And as, you know, we were talking about before this, a lot of times it comes with like, some pretty hostile stuff, right? So there are some activists that are famous for writing incredibly nasty letters right, to shareholders. You know, oh, they're so funny. You know, making fun, saying like, you know, you're you're wasting money, and you know what you should do is use your pencils till they're stubs and sharpen them down. And it's crazy stuff. You know, Dan Loeb is famous for getting involved with the Olive Garden and going in and telling them to put more salt in the water. So like. Sometimes it gets a little crazy, right, with their demands. But in general, that 13D filing is an indication that, you know, some institutional investor at least is taking interest in and wants to shake things up. I think it might have been starboard with Darden, but I, I, I think they might have been right too. They weren't sufficiently salting the water. Yeah, I know. I mean, we can discuss Olive Garden's food at another day, but I think uh, – <laughs> But it was interesting that the level to which, and, and yeah, you're right, it was Starboard, um, but the level to which different activists will get involved and and, and how they specialize or how they don't specialize, it, it's it's really interesting to just kind of, you know, go through that data and there's a lot of it. I think Loeb, uh, either Loeb attributes it to, there was a gentleman out here, Robert Chapman III, who was, mm -hmm. yeah. he was very kind of macho, uh, you know, was always pictured with a, with a big shark uh, jaw behind him and all this sort of stuff, and it, he'd, he'd tell stories about going through the jungle and charging at. You know, he was confronted by some sort of monkey or ape in the jungle and charged it. That was it. Was all part of the persona, and it was, and it came from. Uh, yeah. You know, Icon does the same thing. He always says, "I grew up in this really rough area. I'm a really tough guy." Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, Icon is like. I mean, the guy's drinking martinis on CNBC and great? 80 years old. I mean, he just, you know, and then he and uh, he and Bill Ackman having their very public fight and yelling at each other. I mean, if, if 
if, if there is a common theme in my research, it turns out that I just am really interested in stories. It's and, fun. And it's super fun. And reading these letters, I mean, doing this kind of research is, in one sense, thankless because you have to really hand collect so much data. It turns out that's my strength. But but also you get occasionally rewarded with just these hilarious stories or these letters. Um, and the personalities of these folks are big, right? I mean, yeah. it, you got to have a lot of guts to go out hold a really concentrated portfolio for many of these guys. And, and, and you know, people talk about activists being long-term, I'm sorry, short-term, but that doesn't, that's not borne out in the data. And these guys stick around two, three, four years. Some of them, like like Jeff Ubbin from Value Act, you know, he's now just moved on to some new things, but he'd stick around for 15 years, get on the board. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways that activists can, can go in. And I'm really interested in that cross-sectional um, differences across that. So let's let's talk a little bit more about your area of research. What, what's uh, what's your most recent paper called, and and what's it about? The most recent one. So yeah, so my most recent paper in the activism space is is about prior experience, and it's called "How Does Past Experience Affect Hedge Fund Activism?" And this is the paper that I reached out to you about because I was I was we have this kind of working hypothesis about what we think is happening, um, and and luckily now this paper is is forthcoming at a journal, so it's we've been working on it a long time, which is great. Congrats. The, the, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's some papers take longer than others, and this one really getting the story pinned down. It just took us a long time. But but what we argue is that certain activists come to the table, if you like, with oh, they all come with a fair amount of prior experience. So the average number of years experience for any of these hedge fund managers sort of you know, at the start of their activism careers is something like 15 to 20 years. So they've been out doing stuff. You know, they're maybe 50 years old. And they are um, they are generally have backgrounds that either are in investment banking or, you know, um, the other space we look at is private equity and special situations funds. And so when we take a look at their biographies and we hand collect all this data and just looked at what their prior work looked like, about 80% of my sample, that's right, maybe slightly less than 80% of my sample has either private equity slash special situations. You think of this very intense kind of portfolio company approach. Um, or they come from investment banking, which is very different, right? If you, the way we sort of think about it is, we think about investment bankers as having great quantitative skills, obviously strong people skills, but there's a certain amount of skills that we would argue, and we base this on some some great work by um, by Morrison and Wilhelm. Um, Wilhelm is at UVA, and if you look at their work, they argue that investment bankers have these skills, and they call them codifiable codifiable, however you want to pronounce it. And these are going to be folks who have really good Excel skills and really good quant skills. They're great at like dealing with deals, mergers and acquisitions, putting together deals, and then doing that a lot of times. Where the flip side, the special situations, private equity funds, you kind of slide into some of the distressed and turnaround guys here too. Those guys have more experience going deep. So if I'm getting involved with a company and putting it in my portfolio or trying to turn it around, I'm going to get involved with that company. I'll probably buy a bit more of the stock. I may buy across the capital structure. So maybe I own some debt too. And most likely I'm going to try to be there for like three to five years and try to really make a difference. And so we put these two against each other and say, you're either a specialist, a private equity, special situations kind of guy. And we argue that their skills are coming from that type of um, that type of environment that's a partnership. So special situations funds, private equity funds organize as partnerships. Investment banks, 
public companies. And so the skill set that you pick up is going to be different. So the human capital and financial capital in the special situations, private equity guys, that's the same thing, right? It's the same people. Your partners are invested. We're an investment bank. You know, you might be an employee. Maybe you're managing director, but it's just a different feel. And so we argue that the softer skills, if you like, the skills with negotiations and with dealing with people, also really strong and important legal and regulatory skills. You know, if you're working in private equity or turnaround, you better know how to read those documents carefully, understand what's happening there, where you're going to fit in. So we look at those two different categories, and then we compare them to the, the folks who don't have any of those any of those backgrounds. So they might have an industry background, or maybe they're a younger guy and don't have much background. And we find that the financial specialists, which encompass both special situations guys and the investment banking guys, tend to have better outcomes for their activism relative to the guys with none of that experience. And then within that group, we find all kinds of interesting um, interesting outcomes. So the specialists tend to be in longer, their portfolios are more concentrated, they tend to um, be, be unafraid of taking really big stakes that might trigger regulatory filings. They're more likely to do private placements where the other guys, the generalists, the investment banker guys, are more likely to use call options. So there's this sort of short-term, long-term approach. And then when the specialists get involved, they're more likely to get board seats. They're more likely to have this, um, what appears to be a more cooperative relationship. So the target management doesn't fight back as hard against them. So that's kind of interesting. And we look at those outcomes and we find that both types have pretty good like ROA long term. Um, and we find actually that the generalists, the investment bankers, most of the bang for their buck comes from mergers and acquisitions, both consistent with my prior work, but also with the idea that if I worked in investment bank, I probably have some expertise in M&A. So the, basically, is it, is it fair to say that the two groups kind of break down into one is more transactional? and one is yep. around for a little bit longer. And the transactional mm -hmm. ones, the investment banking guys, naturally they're, they're getting in there and they're looking for a transaction like a, a, a faster sale. Whereas yep. the uh, longer term guys are looking to make some improvement at the portfolio, at the fundamental level. And then, uh, you know, that eventually that leads to better stock price performance. Is that is that a fair kind of summary of, of what they're doing? I do think, I do think that's fair. And, and sort of philosophically thinking about their approach and just the way they think about um, what activism means to them, right. I think that that's right. So, you know, and, and they're both playing to their strengths. And so I think both sets of activists are skilled. And I think that a lot of that is coming from their prior experience. We were we were kind of excited that it linked so nicely, right? Because you, you have a hypothesis and you think, well, this guy's probably going to do this. And it, it turned out to be pretty consistent across the board. Um, one of the puzzles that we saw was that the investment bank guys, the generalists, they tended to have a much bigger initial stock price than the specialists. Again, you can think about that as short-term versus long-term. It kind of made sense. More of a but pop. When we, Is that what you, more, more of, of a, a pop. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there, one of the one of the only things we can say for sure about hedge fund activism is that when activists get in, the stock market is happy. So you always get this like 10, 12, 15 day, just, you know, nice, um, nice increase in returns for that period, um, excess of the market, you know, so these are like legit um, excess returns. But when you look at when we broke it down, what we found was the majority of that, even that initial pop came from the expectation that those firms would eventually merge with respect to the generalists. So investment bankers, when they got in, were about twice as likely to say, 
we think you should merge, which is again, consistent. And we found that that 20% or whatever that was, that, that chunk of it, that was where we saw most of the action in the stock price. And it turned out that those firms did frequently merge more often. So it was this really nice kind of the, the guy comes in, he's got a reputation, right, for probably shaking things up and getting mergers done. The market knows that. They recognize that up front. And then ultimately, we look 18 months out after activism. Ultimately, those were the ones that were more likely to merge. So that was kind of a cool result. Do you see uh, one – does one group generate a better return than the other? Or is it, is it sort of the, the, the deal guys tend to be more front-end loaded and the operational guys, it takes a little bit longer, but ultimately it's a, it's a better return? Do you see anything like that? That's kind of how we see it. So when we look at the short-term pop, like that's right, you see it more with the, with the generalists, the IB guys, but really concentrated in the ones where they're like, buddy, you got to sell your firm. You know, you need a merger. Um, if you look long-term, long-term stock performance, stock performance is like notoriously difficult to attribute to anything. And so as an academic, if you try to put a long-term stock performance return in your paper, you're probably going to, they're going to tell you to take that out because you can't prove really? causality in any way. Yeah. So you can look at it and we find maybe a little bit of that, but, but more comfortable for academics are the operating performance improvements. And we actually do find that for both sets slightly better for the, the guys who stay around longer, but we do find some operational performance improvements from the generalists. And we think of that as maybe not all the way to M&A, but maybe capital structure changes or things like selling assets, selling underperforming assets. Um, they both replace the CEO. The specialists do it slightly more often. But again, that makes sense in, in the, the idea that they're going to be there longer. Um, they're far more likely, the specialists, to get board representation. And board representation is fascinating because it is, you know, it, these are hedge fund activists who are pretty wealthy. You might think a small investor would be like, cool, I'm going to get on board and make an extra hundred grand or whatever. For the activists, it's not this short term, um, this short term payoff. I think they really do get in there and, and try to make changes. So that's been kind of interesting to look at. Yeah, I think it used to be it used to be the rule that anybody who wanted to be a director uh, shouldn't be a director because they didn't realize like there's a you get paid a little bit of money, but then you've got this very long right. tail of liability that yes. just you kind of carry around. It's yes. When I, when I wrote Deep Value, one of the interesting bits of research that I came across, which came out in 2014, one of the interesting bits of research was they, the 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 paper that I looked at, which just escapes me now, but it was it looked at. Uh, two types of activism and they broke it down into basically what they called balance sheet activism and operational okay, yeah. activism. So the balance sheet uh -huh. activists just came in and said, you got a lazy balance sheet, you need to pay some out, you need to buy back some stock, you need to sell the yeah. company and all of those sort of maneuvers. And then there were operational guys who were more like listed private equity type investors where mm -hmm. they were genuinely trying to make some changes. And the, the, the thing that I found most interesting is I think that the balance sheet activism is the easiest to do. And it seems to be the one that generates the best returns too, whereas the I operational mean, stuff like, is... Yeah. The operational stuff feels kind of thankless, but yeah. I guess if you've got a private equity background, it's like that's in your blood. So you go do it and you like doing it. Maybe it's fun. But I agree with you that the, the sort of the easy, easy pickings. And we did find, too, one of the really important things about activism is that it's really hard to attribute causality. And if you're a finance professor, the gold standard is if you can find a causal relationship. So we punt on that a little bit. And we, we instead look at sort of selection and we say, OK, given the backgrounds of these guys, what do they how do they select stocks? What changes do they make? Um, you know, and you can look at really substantive things like getting on the board or I pick these types of stocks over these types. And we found pretty consistent 
consistent that the specialists, the special situations guys, didn't seem to pick stocks that were easy to fix. So they weren't necessarily distressed by any means. And we kicked out the really distressed ones because we didn't want this, it, the paper we wanted to be more about activism in relatively healthy firms, but but they were more likely to pick firms that didn't have obvious, you know, you have too much cash or you don't have enough leverage or all the kinds of things that you might see from the investment banking guys. So to some extent, they are picking targets that are harder to fix and they end up with about the same result. So you might argue that, you know, they, they do have a fair amount of skill, but it's a it's a different process. Again, and we also can't see when they get in, right? So, so we don't know. We know the activists are making. Oh, you know more when money they than, file, but not necessarily yeah, when they buy. When they file. Right. That's right. And so you can get some of that, but certainly activists wouldn't do activism if they didn't think it was going to be profitable. Um, and the stock price returns that we calculate are all based on public filing data. So certainly you might think that if you're a talented kind of ex-private equity guy, special situations guy, maybe you're better at timing your entry. It's really difficult to test that. Um, but we did find that they just seem much more willing to go into firms that weren't obviously terrible, you know, or and I shouldn't say terrible, that weren't obviously easily fixable. Well, I, I sort of had, I had two questions about the research that, uh, that, that the operational versus balance sheet. One of them is, um, is it just that it's so hard to measure the, what the, what the operational guys are doing because I wasn't really I didn't really appreciate that that was a that that was that hard to do that you could you, it was hard to sort of tease out the um, the excess return to to the operational to what the operational guys were doing so can you what why is that so hard to tease out and and how do you how do you deal with that yeah I mean it is really hard because you can't it's hard to measure kind of intangible improvements that might that might come through in in you know maybe maybe they've made some operational improvements but it somehow doesn't come through in ROA as strongly as you think it would or or so you try to look at balance sheet items and income statement items and get a sense for what they're doing but in general if you think about it as there are probably some trade-offs there that maybe they they improve some operations in one area but then you know sales are down or revenues are down like it's hard to sort of assess that so we end up having to use these standard measures. That said, there are a couple papers that do a really nice job looking more at operations. So um, forgetting the citations, but Lu Lucian Bebchuk at, at Harvard has some work that looks at long-term performance. And and he he and his colleagues, maybe mixing them up with Alain Brav, one of those smart B guys, they're looking at the um, at the, the census data and they can get data all the way down to the plant level. And they actually find some pretty cool like productivity improvements, like um, revenues per employee um, and that sort of thing. So they can look at, at plant productivity and that's kind of an operational measure that you can't get unless you have census access. And they do find evidence that activists, now this isn't splitting the way I split, but just activists in general seem to make those kinds of improvements, which again, sort of filter through ROA, but it's tougher, right? It's at that level. So that's a cool result. And then there's another paper about innovation that shows that when activists involve are involved, firms are more likely to, um, you know, we look at like things like R&D, but that's really noisy. They look at patents and patent filings, and mostly they look at patent citations, which is kind of the gold standard for innovation. And they do find pretty good evidence that when activists are involved, patent citations go up. So there, well, What's there a citation? Be, that's, that's somebody looking okay. at a filing somebody, and yeah, saying, somebody else is like using that's, the prior it. Yeah. that's the prior data, prior. Exactly. Yeah, so anyone can file a patent, right? Like you and I could go file a patent on something silly, And then probably. it just gets ignored. Like, it wouldn't mean anything, right? I mean, maybe, but but so citation means that someone else actually Some using it. Some referred to it, I see, yep. 
Yes. Yeah. So the citations are at least a, a better measure that there's some I external see. interest in this. So and possibly applying to, you know, to use it or, or have access to it or, you know, this sort of thing. So the the um, innovation work by, by these guys, there's a guy, Indiana, who does a lot of work in this space. Their paper on activists and innovation is pretty compelling to me that they do seem to make operational type improvements that don't always show up really directly in the consolidated um, financial data that we get. The other question that I had, does this does this change over time? So that, that paper that I referred to, that the reason I mentioned that the, the publication of the book in 2014, that's basically, yeah. there's a pretty, 2014, 2015, the, um, the value, value stops working somewhere around that kind of period of time, right? 2015, yeah. 2018. Prior to then, there had sort of been this golden age from like 2000, to sort of t around that sort of period where just buying lower multiple stuff did really well. And that's a lot, what a lot of these guys are doing. Yes. Since then, it's been, I, I just wondered if maybe operational improvement had started working like post 2015. <laughs> I know it's so hard to know because I think you're right. I mean, one, one very valid criticism of activism is just they're good stock pickers and they go in and, you know, mean reversion and these companies get better. And I'm, there's certainly an aspect of that. Like I would never deny that, and to me, stock picking is a skill, but, you know, whether the activism causes these changes, it's really unknown. That's why we try to look at things we can measure. But I agree with you. Um, the idea that operational improvements might be working is good. You could also think of activism as this evolution over time where the first couple campaigns, the first couple hundred campaigns go back to like 94 or whatever. There are some really lousy companies out there that need obvious fixes. So, you know, you're, you've got these, these like, these are all great fruit. opportunities. Yes, exactly. So we can get all those. And then at some point, activists, one, they might get cocky and be like, hey, we're going to go change like Apple or something. Right. And like, maybe that, that's that definitely our, happens. Uh, that, that's, Carl Icahn was in Apple for a while. It takes a lot of credit for what they did. Um, or you have um, just fewer opportunities. So it's this idea of, you know, too many dollars chasing, chasing too few opportunities. But I do think what happens is and why I think my work and the work that you referred to are, are useful to think about is there is some separation between the types of activism that work and when they work and what kind of skills you need. Um, and I think this idea that just anyone can file a 13D, I mean, the original research everyone does, you just look at all of them, right? And that's fine. You got to look at the averages. But when you'd really think hard about what they're doing, why they're doing it, who they are, I think then you get a little bit more comfortable with, okay, maybe there is some cause and effect here. And maybe that guy was just lucky. Do you have any sense of the follow-through from filing a 13D in the sense that do some people just file the 13D knowing that that's a signal to the market and then just not do anything after that? I think so, um, and but usually that they get found out pretty quick. So right. I think um, that initial stock price pop kind of happens on average, but about 25% of filings actually have a negative abnormal return. And so I think the market kind of knows. They know reputations of activists. I think probably back in 1994, every filing was like, woo, but yeah. now I think people know, right? Like, I've never heard of that guy, and I don't know what he's doing, and so there's less of a response. But I think that's right. We do follow most of the campaigns through and and the the success rate if you want to sort of say do they get something close to what they asked for I want a board seat they get a board seat you know I want you to sell some assets they sell some assets it's like 60% of the ones where they have a solid request but remember about half of the campaigns in all our samples they just say uh, we think this stock is cheap and they reserve the right to do activist stuff but they don't always so there's a little bit of both 
because it's a it's a it's a pretty it's lazy but it's it's not a bad idea if you think the stock no. is cheap and you file a 13d now you get to tell everybody we think the stock is cheap and look maybe right. we're going to do something right and i do think there probably are some activists that are in there with this short-term pop but it turns out to be not the majority and um those cases obviously are just it, it's sort of one off so if i look at like a, you know pick a big activist like, like dan lauberg or bill ackman i mean they also file 13g sometimes right so they absolutely sometimes will go in and just be holders of the stock you know they have a concentrated portfolio they're going to be activists in three companies and less activists in others. And the typical act, the typical activist hedge fund, Ackman not being a good example of this because he's very concentrated, but the typical activist hedge fund, about 22, 23% of their portfolio, you just look at their long stocks, are activist positions and the rest are, are you know, whatever, passive, um, active, but not activist, I guess. Yeah, and I so, you know, right, you can imagine like, I am but one man, right? So how how many firms can I really go be activist in at any point in time? And so, you know, Ackman right now, while we were doing this for my class, we looked up Ackman. He has seven holdings, right? Like that is a concentrated portfolio. Yeah. And I, I didn't look carefully, but I'm guessing most of them are activist positions, whereas a 13D. But then others who do activist stuff, you know, it's just going to be a, a minority of their portfolio, substantial minority, but not the majority. Well, I remember in the heyday of in the mid 2000s, there were a few articles that would talk about 27 year old activists calling up, you know, pretty well respected, established <laughs> CEOs. Yes. And they might have even just been an analyst at a big firm and they'd be telling them all the stuff they had to do. And the guy just said, yes. yeah, you're right. That's all. That's all. And then yeah. Yeah, hang up the phone and not do anything. <laughs> I'm all done with you. Yeah, there's certainly a credibility factor that matters. And one of the other things I look at in, in a different paper, but shows up in this one too, is that is the interaction between the activists and the target firm. And so I think that works super, I mean, again, interesting because it's stories, but you can see where an activist comes in. And I got this idea reading some stuff by Matt Levine, like my favorite blogger, and he was writing about poison pills being used against activists as opposed to being used against takeover uh, sharks or whatever. And sure, activists sometimes take over firms, but the poison pill was a pretty aggressive way to say, hey, activist, you know, you, you own 5%, we're not letting you go more than 10. So we saw a handful of poison pills being put in. And my colleague and I, my co-author and I thought about, well, gosh, is this happening a lot? And if it does happen, you know, what goes on in the rest of the campaign. And we found this is a paper called Hostile Resistance to Activism. And we divided the resistance into like, you know, a proxy fight or a poison pill, really hostile stuff versus, oh, the company just made it a little harder for shareholders to meet slightly more, you know, benign, but still kind of nasty, or they did nothing. And we found that hedge fund activists, if the target fought back hard, and the activists didn't counterfight back, that was like the worst of all uh, possible outcomes. So those those just stagnated. Yeah, but when we when we found the cases where the firm sort of appeared to cooperate, those turned out okay. Or the cases where the firm got hostile and then the activists got hostile back, those turned out okay too. So it was this idea of like, you go in and it's like a little bit of a crapshoot, like, is this guy gonna go crazy, like, you know, trying to fight against me? Or is he gonna also sort of say like, hey, you know, I agree that my governance is lousy and we're going to try to fix it. And so you can think about both. Uh, the, the It's like a personality, am I hostile or not? But also this, we, we looked really carefully at like these ideas of changes in governance and poison pills. And the poison pill thing to me is just, it's, it's a small sample. They don't do it very often. But to me, if you are a target firm and you put up a poison pill against an activist, that is a pretty like, that is a pretty strong sign that you are not going to be a very friendly target.
And so then it becomes key whether the activist fights back or not. And then when they yes. don't fight back, if you're, if you're watching from the sidelines or you've got a holding in it, then it's probably yes. you want to cut bait at that point. You want to cut bait? And the activist usually cuts bait too. He kind of like quietly like too rich for my blood, you know. Um, and when you think about the types of firms they, they target, I was reviewing a paper for a journal and they were focusing a little bit on um, – on, you know, when you come in and you target a firm, do you first consider what their governance looks like? And I'm sure the answer is yes, but no one studied that very carefully. So that's interesting to think about too. Like you want to go in and target a firm that doesn't have a lot of sort of takeover defenses and, and it's hard to call meetings and all the different things that firms can do to kind of entrench management. Um, if you go after a firm that's super entrenched, you know, what happens? Do they just like laugh because they have a big wall built up and they just shake you off? So that's not something that's been looked at very closely, but I, I do think it's important to, to think about. So. There's lots of sneaky ways of hiding it too. One of them is they all get golden parachutes, so they, they yes. want them to come in. And the other one is the poison yes. put where they say yes. uh, we can sell our assets or uh, we've got we've got in our in our debt covenants when you guys come in and you get some sort of holding all the debt come becomes due and yes. payable very yes. sneaky those stuff is so sneaky and then the whole green mail thing which icon's kind of famous for like just let me uh, just buy let me take my you know take i bought out. the stock at 12 take me out at 15 and we're good or whatever the number is not allowed and to so do it anymore that's just like, I don't think that's legal anymore, but it definitely was in existence for a while. So it's, I think that's been a good change for the market because it has meant that the other shareholders get to participate. If you want to take me out, you've got to take everybody out. I think that's a better Agreed. way of doing it. I uh, agree. I mean, I think, I think shareholder democracy is on average a good thing. Not all shareholders are brilliant geniuses, but you know, not having any say isn't good either. So. In the, uh, in, the, in the SSRN, I was looking at your most downloaded paper. So that's, that's hedge fund contagion and liquidity shocks. Why is that paper so popular? <laughs> well, I have a really famous co-author paper, which helps Renee Stoltz, my dissertation advisor. But, uh, but also, I think it's just a really cool and timely topic. So I, when I graduated, I was, I was working, I think, at Purdue. I might have been at, at Northeastern by the time. And Renee called me and said, hey, um, I'm thinking about contagion and liquidity, and there's he had done a bunch of work in that space. And the idea of contagion is really interesting. It's that you think about assets that are generally not very highly correlated. So maybe think about stocks and bonds, or maybe think about U.S. stocks and emerging market stocks. There's correlation, but it varies over time, and it's not usually obvious or high because different macro factors are going to drive it. And so one of the there's a big literature on financial contagion, which effectively says when things go bad. Assets that are not typically very correlated suddenly become get more correlated. correlated. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll hear like people say like correlations go to one during right. a financial crisis, and like that's a little bit of a stretch, but not too far off. And so we thought about, and this was pre-crisis. It was like 0405 when we started the paper, but we were thinking a lot about is there contagion in hedge funds? In other words, um, if things kind of go bad, and we were we were defining bad as you know we didn't have like. A financial crisis. We ended up having that, and that is it was in our paper. But more generally, you know, you're in a bottom fifth percentile of return distributions or something like that. What happens? Do hedge funds that are different styles, equity market neutral, long short equity, convertible ARB, fixed income ARB, relative value, you know, name all the styles, do they get closer? Are they more correlated when things are bad? 
if that's true, that's a particularly not good news for hedge fund investors who are typically being sold hedge funds on the premise that they are going to have lower volatility or be good diversifying tools. And so that was our basic premise. Um, and so we started writing that and we did find that correlations increased during bad times and, and there was some evidence of contagion. And then the financial crisis came, which gave us more data points to look at things being really bad. And our paper ended up being focused a bit more on the recent crisis than say like, you know, the prior recession. But what we found was that not only is there this contagion across different hedge fund styles during bad times, but it seemed to be very strongly correlated with liquidity. So the paper's called Li liquidity shocks and hedge fund contagion or the other way around. And we looked at liquidity shocks in the repo markets. And again, the big liquidity shocks that we saw during 2007, 2008, 2009, when, um, when you know, markets were freezing up. And we saw, unfortunately for hedge fund investors, that that contagion seemed to increase during those times. So. And so what's the driver of that? You just, you're selling one thing because, uh, yeah, so what, what's the driver? Yeah, so the, the liquidity stuff is really interesting. So there's a whole bunch of work. There's this sort of famous paper by Bruno Meyer and Peterson that looks at, they call, um, I'm forgetting the name of the paper, liquidity risk or tail risk or contagion risk. And they're looking at this idea of liquidity spirals where you're going to have shocks to asset liquidity and you're going to have shocks to funding liquidity. So you can think about asset liquidity. You know, I hold a bunch of risky stuff on my balance sheet and sometimes I can sell it. Like think of risky mortgage-backed securities. When times are good, everyone will buy that because, you know, housing prices are going up forever. So like, great. So risky securities are risky, are not risky, right, until suddenly you freeze up. So you had this downturn in the mortgage markets, and you pick, just picture banks to keep it simple. Banks are holding a bunch of risky stuff. We don't know how risky it is because it's fairly opaque. But during a normal time, banks can sort of pledge their assets or sell their assets relatively reasonably well. During bad times, everybody starts to get nervous. And so there's liquidity shock on the asset side, which means that even as like a big investment bank, it might be hard to sell some of these risky mortgage-backed securities. I might not even be able to pledge them as collateral. And so then that gets into the funding liquidity. Funding liquidity says, I'll lend you money if you pledge me some collateral, but I don't trust your collateral. And so this idea of spirals of, I have risky assets, they're now suddenly illiquid, I need cash because I am a highly levered firm like most banks were pre-crisis, and I need to borrow from, you know, in the short-term money markets, people don't like my risky assets, I'm suddenly hitting a funding liquidity shock. What do I have to do? Well, I'm gonna have to sell some of those assets. Well, gosh, it's not a great time to sell your risky assets when the risk is coming true. And so I'm going to engage in, you know, we'll call them fire sales if you like. I gotta sell my assets. I'm not gonna get what I want for them. That spirals downward. So this idea of funding liquidity and asset liquidity, we took that sort of to our hedge fund data. And of course, we can't look at all the holdings of hedge funds, but we can base, you know, we can look at these measures of funding and asset liquidity and see how how they correlate with different styles of hedge funds and the troubles that they might have had during um, during a financial crisis. And so you can see the funds shrink, you can see flows coming out, um, and you see effectively values dropping. And sadly, you know, if everybody's relying on the same funding source and that dries up, everybody's going to have to sell asset the, assets at the same time, and that's going to drive down prices probably well beyond fundamental values. Yeah, that's fascinating. Did you do? You, do you continue to watch it? Did you watch it through uh, the most recent March drawdown? 
I haven't watched it very carefully, but um, but what's interesting though is that hedge funds have been just kind of terrible since 2010, right? I mean, they came out of the crisis, they looked okay. I mean, a lot of them failed and had to put up gates. But what ended up happening, again, just this is my view looking at hedge funds, you're in this bull market where borrowing's really easy. Hedge funds make money when there's volatility. Hedge funds make money when there's something to bet against. If you have a secular bull market where funding is cheap, it's just hard to it's hard to justify your value as a hedge fund when the S and P five hundred is crushing you all day long, and even vol on a volatility cent, right? Like we've got this nice smooth up. So I think contagion is still important and interesting in in the hedge fund space, but I think that the underlying macro conditions are such that I wouldn't. I think it'd be hard to be a hedge fund manager right now. Like it'd be kind of boring, right? Everything. I mean, now we're seeing a little downturn. More terrifying um, that, than boring. I, but... <laughs> I, I know, right? Yeah. I could have looked at the recent downturn. I haven't. But I do think that um, this idea of liquidity shocks and, and the spirals, I mean, everyone kind of knew about it. And th this paper by Bruno Meyer and Peterson was so such a beautiful theoretical model and tons of us are out there testing it. So I do think it's still a potential issue. Um, <clears throat> the Fed though has learned a lot from this as well. And so the Fed stepped in and backstopped a lot of markets post-crisis. I think now they're kind of pre-backstopping. And so I don't I don't think we're a funding crisis is out of the question, but we're not seeing anywhere near the pressure on like short-term money markets that we saw in 2007, 2008. It was an extraordinarily rapid decline followed by an equally rapid recovery that sort of seems to have shot back over the, the previous high. So it's as if it didn't happen. Well, now everyone's mad at the Fed because they're not buying more long-term bonds or whatever. We talked about that in my fixed income class. Like the Fed basically promised to keep rates at zero for three years or whatever, and and the markets are still unhappy. So, um, you know, it's an interesting time to be uh, to be an investor, I guess. Uh, last last question, last topic. I just wanted to discuss sure. your uh, hedge funds for retail examine uh, for retail investors and examination of hedged mutual funds. It's a fascinating sure. topic. Um, what what do you find? What, let's let's talk about first. What is a hedged mutual fund? Yeah, so I, I like that paper a lot too. It was my one of my very first papers that got published in Decent Journal and um, and my co-authors were lovely, but we were really interested in thinking about um, about mutual funds that use hedge fund strategies. So within like the mutual fund space, the 40 Act, if you like, the Investment Company Act of 1940, call those mutual funds, 40 Act funds, they have restrictions, but they don't, they're not totally restricted. So if I'm running a mutual fund, I can use some leverage, I can short sell, right? I can, um, I can use some derivatives, but I'm limited as to how much, right? So that's kind of a, the whole point. It's a, it's a mutual fund, I can't go crazy. But what we found was that during that time, I think our sample ends in 2004, 2005, we were looking at a very small sample of mutual funds that were doing hedge fund strategies in the mutual fund space. And so that was kind of cool. Our sample's tiny, like 67 funds. But we had the whole universe and we thought, this is novel enough, let's give it a shot and take a look. And so we, we came up with some, some ideas about why those funds ought to either be better or worse than sort of traditional mutual funds. And so we ran a study that looked at, we just called them hedge mutual funds. There's still not a great name for them. We called them hedge mutual funds. Um, and, and we compared them to traditional mutual funds with similar style, you know, stock to stock and so forth. And then also hedge funds. So we had a data set of hedge funds. And we found that the performance and the risk of the hedge mutual funds was sort of better than traditional mutual funds, not as good as hedge funds. And this was the heyday for hedge funds too, remember. And we argued that it makes sense, right? It's it's restriction. So I'm in the mutual fund space. I can't do all the crazy stuff hedge funds can do. 
it's incentives. Most managers in mutual funds get fixed asset fees, not uh, not, not a carry. Not a percentage of profit, not a carry, not an incentive fee. So the incentives are there are, are different as well. Um, and and so it was this: what can I invest in, and how do I get paid? The really cool part of that paper, and I remember being so excited when I figured it out, was that about half of those hedge mutual funds were also run by a manager that had a hedge fund. And so it wasn't just like, you know, Fidelity's running a bunch of like long only funds and they grab a guy and go, go do a hedge mutual fund. The guy's like, I don't know how to short, right? Like, this is not what I do. But the hedge fund guys, for them to go into that space kind of might make sense, right? Especially if I'm a hedge fund guy that's already kind of within the mutual fund limits on leverage and, um, and shorting and things like that. So if it's not a huge adjustment to take my hedge fund and stick it in the mutual fund space, you know, why wouldn't I do that? And so we found that those were actually driving the performance. So if you are a hedge fund manager with hedge fund experience and you know how to run a hedge fund, you're gonna run a hedge mutual fund pretty well. Otherwise, disaster, right? Well, maybe not disaster. <laughs> During that time, maybe not. But if you take that sample and, and push it forward, there's other work looking at this space, they do kind of find disaster. Like a lot of these funds that are trying to use hedge fund strategies in the mutual fund space are just not great. They're really expensive. Their performance is not that impressive. And so our paper really was was very specific and said, if you know how to be a hedge fund in a hedge fund space, you probably figure it out in the mutual fund space. You just got to keep to some slightly tighter um, restrictions. And we actually talked to a couple guys. So there's this guy, Dennis Bine. He's at Analytic Investors. He may have moved by now. so 100 years ago um, in out there in, I think, in, he in hedge fund world. That's in hedge fund uh, world, right? five years late that everybody ages in dog years. So I met Dennis at this conference and we were talking about my paper and he was I was like, dude, why would you go in the mutual fund space? That's like, you know, slumming or whatever. And he's like, hey, you know, mutual fund assets are are much stickier than hedge fund assets. You know, if we can raise, if we can increase our assets under management, sure, we don't get carry on them, but it's a nice steady annuity. It's a nice stream of income. And if we can adapt our strategy to fit in that space, then why wouldn't we do it? And so that made sense to me. There's another guy, um, Luthold, I can't probably pronounce his name. He had some stuff. And so, you know, I talked to these guys and they were first of all super excited that like an academic cared about their stuff. But it was <laughs> kind of fun to talk to them and they said, Yeah, you know, it's it's asset gathering and Sure, if I was running some crazy macro fund that relied on like 100 times leverage or taking big bets, I couldn't, right? It doesn't fit in the space. But the long, short equity and equity right. market neutral, those those work okay. So that was a fun paper. Um, and I think it did have some influence. I think um, I, I remember there were some people that were kind of were running assets in that space. They're like, you know, this is kind of cool results. So. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh yeah, th uh, thanks so much for your time today, Nicole. If folks want to get in contact with you or follow along with your research or see what you're doing, what's the best way of doing that? Probably the best way to initially find me is on Twitter. So my handle is at Nikki R1. So at N I K I R1. And the um, my name is Nicole Boyson on Twitter. I might be the only one. So not too hard to find. I look like this. Um, and uh, there's a link there to my research as well. And, um, you know, people can always get in touch with me at Northeastern. My email is public on their website. So easy, easy to find and always happy to talk about my work. I will put all of that in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, Professor thank Nicole you. Boyson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. <laughs>